really well. I'm um, enthused by Jurgen. We're going to go in our minds to Lesotho, where I've never been. The closest I've been in my mind is to the ladies' number one detective agency in Botswana, which is yes. not far away. But Steve Fleming is, um, by the time this goes out, this book will be in circulation. Radical football. Uh, Jurgen Griesbeck and, That's right. and yeah. the story of football for good. £14.99, out on pitch. Uh, and this is your second book. So how has your life changed since... The book Eleven came out in 2010. So it's, it's, it's changed a lot. Um, when, when Eleven came out in 2010, we'd only really just begun our journey with Kick for Life. I think we'd been going about uh, five years from the start of the, the organisation. Um, and so that was really in the infancy of, uh, of our journey. And then 10 years down the line, I actually never intended to wait that long to do a second book, but such is uh, the busyness of life that... Um, I ended up waiting. I had a number of other ideas I, that came up and were neglected and, and then put aside and then eventually settled on this project. And, of course, 10 years down the line, Kick for Life has come a long way and so has the whole kind of football for good movement as a whole as well. So it's, it's kind of a, an evolution of – the book is an evolution on uh, – or builds on, on 11 and, and I think is actually a lot better and stronger as well. It is a breeze block of a book. It's one of those books that I like to say, if you dropped it from my window, which is three floors up, uh, if you don't kill someone, then the terminal velocity will certainly knock someone out to the ground. But Never intended for it to be like that. It, it was always envisioned, I think, probably going to be around sort of 70,000 uh, words. Uh, but as we got stuck into it, we, we realised there was actually a lot of great material that we needed to cover. And then we ended up having this third section of the book which wasn't envisaged at the start but which became really probably the most exciting part of it and that then added on uh, quite a few more words yeah i mean you were in no struggle for word count what what word count did you tell paul and jane at pitch that you were hitting um, well yeah originally i think we said sort of 70 and, and then i think it's come in i could be a bit off here but somewhere between 105 and 110 I wrote a book across the 2010s. Originally, I put it out in 2013, and then it came out in 2016, and now it's it's done. I'm never going to look at this book again. It's called A Modern Guide <laughs> to Modern Football. And I asked these big 11 questions like, well, why don't I support Man United anymore? Or why was I addicted to Football Manager? Or if you get the whole list of football talent from before the Bosman era, who do you have to tell? Sorry, Diego, Pele, George Best, you can't play. So that's available, but I wanted something in print, and it's delightful that my book, which I'm not here to plug from Kids to Champions May the 2nd, is on the same stable as an, a vast array of pitch books. I mean, in 2010, I think pitch had only brought out a handful of books, and now you can get a whole section of a football library. So, Steve Fleming, thank you for dropping off Radical Football to the football library. Who do you support? Which team do you support? Be careful, you do run one. So there's two answers. Yeah, so first and foremost, Kick for Life FC, which is uh, the football club um, based in Lesotho, which uh, I'm the co-founder of, um, which grew out of the charity uh, that we set up. Uh, but going back to kind of my original team and my childhood team, that's Southampton. Uh, so I grew up in Southampton watching uh, the stars of the, of the 80s, probably none more so than Letizia and into the 90s, of course, as well. And, yeah, developed my love of football there on the south coast. I spoke to the chap who had the task of bringing Matt Letizia's thoughts to print. And off the top of my okay. head, I don't remember his name. I've done 200 of these. 
So I, I didn't know we were going to mention Latisse, or indeed that you were a Southampton fan. But I can tell you that Southampton do feature in my Youth Cup book that I'm not here to promote from Kids to Champions, which is, I, I do it like I'm clearing my throat. But Southampton never won the Youth Cup. Yeah, I mean, how far have they got? What's the, the, the best they've ever done? I think, oh gosh, I think semi-final. The closest that they came was when Southampton lent Norwich City a goalkeeper about 15 years ago. And so he is the only player to have been contracted to Southampton when Norwich won the Youth Cup. But off the top of my head, I don't think Southampton have even been to a final. And part of that is because they're too bloody good in the youth levels. What was your reaction when Theo Walcott went to the World Cup in 2006? Yeah, I remember it well. And and there was a bit of excitement, I think. We'd seen it with Owen a few years before going as a youngster and lighting up the World Cup. So there was a kind of feeling maybe this could be the same. But of course, Owen was further along in his growth as a player. And, and it, as it turned out, it was a, a bad decision, as we all saw. But um, yeah, I remember when, it, when I first heard about it, I thought, you know, electric pace at the World Cup could be exciting. And then he didn't get a minute. And where is Theo Walcott now? Back at St Mary's. Back at St Mary's. Although you would have grown up watching football at the Dell. Have you read Franny Benali's new book, which came out last year? No, I haven't yet. Definitely on my list for for his football and for the other stuff he's done since. has been yes. really inspirational with, with the Saints Foundation. And uh, yeah, another player that I, I grew up watching. It was you know, an exciting era. era. Yeah. Um, uh, we had Latiz, Shearer, uh, Rod Wallace and... Um, uh, you know, people like older players like Case and Cockrell. It was a really good team we had in the in the late eighties. But this is from before my time. I, if you asked me what my memories of Southampton are, it's the six three and the five one, five one. The six three was was Man United, and then we did beat Liverpool four one uh-huh. at the top of their game as well. I'm not sure if that's what you're. you're well, I of. should I should be because everyone all people remember is the long range shot by Letitia, and it, it was the game, or maybe it was 3-1, I think they drew the second half, the, the one with the kits, when Ferguson blamed the oh, yeah, kits. That, well, that was, yeah, that was 3-1. 3-1, yeah. yeah. Sorry, I, I claimed that you scored many more goals than you did. But the, part of the problem with Southampton is that if you put together a best of the academy from the last 15 years, they'd walk the Youth Cup, they'd rival Chelsea, because the conveyor belt that has been going on, from Gareth Bale onwards, I mean, an ex- Southampton player Oxlade Chamberlain scored the other night for Liverpool, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's a fantastic system. And actually, I guess the, the roots of that go, go back further, actually, to those young players that were coming through when I first started watching. And, and it hasn't really stopped. I mean, yeah, the, the, the level of talent coming through. It would be quite a team if you piece together um, the players that have gone through Southampton's youth system over the last 30-odd years. And yet, unfortunately, no Youth Cup win. There's still time. Well, yeah, it, well, in fact, no cup win at all in my lifetime. Oh, I was, I was born six months after the, the one major trophy, so oh, no. still waiting. <laughs> well, hopefully Kick for Life FC will win a trophy. So, um... well, well, we have. We have. Um, our, our women's team became champions of Lesotho last year for the first time, so national champions uh, at elite level. Did that make the book? It's in there, yeah, Brilliant. towards the end. Very yeah, good. I've got that fight. Ah, oh, sp- I should have said no spoiler, but I did look... At the Kick for Life website. So I do know that a women's team exists. Have you been in touch with Lewis to ask on how to get parity in the men's and the women's, which there is at Kick for Life? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we knew about the great pioneering step that Lewis had taken, Lewis FC had taken in, in going for gender equal uh, budgets uh, and, and paid quite a few years ago. 
now. Um, so yeah, when we made a decision back um, in 2020, at the height of the pandemic, to, to go for equal budgets as well, we, we touched base with them and then learned a bit more about what they were doing and, and then made our own move and actually becoming the first top flight club in the world um, for our men's and women's teams to, to go for that equal budget. So we got some great exposure and coverage around that in uh, in, in CNN and BBC. Mm-hmm. And I think what made it really so powerful was that it was at a time when the pandemic was leading to lots of increased rates of gender-based violence in Lesotho, but around the world as, as well. And that was one of the reasons we took that step was to make a really powerful statement that um, we need to move things forward That's bro- in, in sport and society. Again, we'll talk a lot more about Herr Griesbeck. Or does he does he go by Jürgen? Can we call him Herr Griesbeck? Uh, well, uh, uh, Jürgen, yeah, is probably the most appropriate right. one, I'd say. All right, so there'll be a lot of chatter. And uh, the book is Radical Football, Jürgen Griesbeck and the story of football for good. What is stopping every team in the Lesotho top flight from having gender parity? Um, well, what, what is stopping any team around the world? Uh, I guess it's... And it's something that's going to keep being asked because I think it's the most exciting thing that's happened in football perhaps ever is, is the current growth and development we're, we're seeing in the women's game. And I think it's the biggest platform ever for us to actually redefine football as a whole. So hopefully Kick for Life is not going to be the, the last and we'll see more teams making that move um, in Lesotho and elsewhere. I'm sure. Um, obviously, I think there's, there's challenges around the size of budgets and it's difficult for, for teams to suddenly get that parity but it's, I think it's something in the long term that clubs should be thinking about and working towards Absolutely, I'm sure you've been asked this before but you look at City's football group, even Newcastle are trying to do that kind of satellites around the world you've started in Lesotho is there a similar thing in Colombia yet? Well there's not uh, a similar football club that I'm aware of but the, I mean the story of uh, the, the book begins in, in Colombia, where, where Jürgen, uh, Jürgen's story in Football for Good begins. And as a, as a relatively young man, he found himself in Colombia during the 1994 World Cup when, uh, after scoring an own goal, Andre Escobar was, was tragically murdered back in his home country a few days later. And that experience really transformed Jürgen's life. And that was what then led him on a path to creating an organisation, Football Pola Paz, um, which used the power and the popularity of sport to tackle violence in Medellin, where Jürgen was living, which at the time in the 90s was the most dangerous and violent city in the world. It is unbelievable that I spoke to someone just the other day. I bumped into a profile and had a message to her and said, wow, Medellin, I know that the FARC rebels have stood down after decades and decades, but is it as bad as people say? And she said, well, more people need to ask. She said she felt growing up in the 2000s and 2010s, that it was more peaceful and there were everyone knew everyone and there were more opportunities to advance. It is better than it was. Absolutely, absolutely yeah. The city has, has definitely progressed in terms of its level of violence. From the, from the 90s was the, was the time during the time of Pablo Escobar and in the aftermath of Pablo Escobar. Um, and, yeah, there were improvements that were made, civic efforts, one of which was Football Polo Paz, which contributed in some way then to, yeah, Medellin is no longer... Uh, at that level of severity in terms of its violence. Was Carlos Valderrama involved in politics? I know he's gone into FIFA and football politics, but is he a kind of George Ware figure in Colombia? Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure. He he was certainly one of the stars of that Colombia team in 1994, and that's part of the story is that they had this amazing team, players like like Valderrama, uh, Higuita, um, (laughs) Escobar himself, 
Rincon. I mean, it's a fantastic team, and, and during the qualifying campaign, they, they beat everybody they came up against. They, they thrashed Argentina in Buenos Aires 5-0, and people like Pele were talking about Colombia as being potential winners of the, of the World Cup. And then it obviously went so horribly wrong, and, and, and they were the first team to be eliminated. And it was really a, a massive factor in that was the backdrop of the, of the drugs trade and the violence that was happening and the, the threats that were made to the team ahead of their, their game against the USA when, when uh, Andre Escobar did score that own goal. Oh, it was, and it was so horrible. I saw an own goal last Friday, um, but I don't particularly want to talk about Watford. Uh, Southampton are actually what the Pozzo's dream of Watford being. And at Southampton have just got this new ownership, right? This new injection. They have, yeah. Yeah, I don't know too much about the, the new owners, if I'm honest. The, the ownership and, and the running of football clubs is, a, is an important theme in the book. And, and the ultimate message of the book is about embedding purpose within the football industry at all levels. And football clubs is obviously a really important part of that. Um, and, and we've got some good voices who speak in that third part of the book where we've got the Radical 11, 11 people from the football ecosystem contributing their thoughts on how we put purpose into the football industry. And one of them is Dale Vince, the um, owner of Forest Green Rovers, who really genuinely are embedding uh, purpose within within their club, the, most, the greenest football club in the world, according to the UN and FIFA, doing some great stuff. And attracting a global fan base, it shows that it can actually be beneficial in that regard. And then we've also got uh, Preeti Shetty, who is the, the the only South Asian woman on the board of a Premier League club. She's a non-exec director at, at Brentford, and she's contributed a brilliant chapter in the book about um, how Brentford are continuing to to embed and develop purpose as a part of their their business model and, and sports model. I'm so pleased Brentford are doing well. I haven't been to the new stadium, but I spoke to a chap called Greville Waterman, and every time Brentford do well. I instantly think about him because uh, that club has failed to be promoted in nine playoff games and at the 10th attempt, they managed really? it. And they are so embedded in West London because they're competing with QPR, Fulham, Chelsea. They moved like five metres away from the original Griffin Park and they're now in the... It's called the Community Stadium, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I think that you know, reflects the ethos of the club. Um, they have the golden share, which means that uh, the fans have a veto on, on certain decisions that are made. And yeah, it's a great example. And, and I think, you know, they're continuing to, to go further as well. They're not stopping where they are. They're, they're, they're looking at how they can go even further with their, their social impact and, and, and their purpose within within a football club. A great example for, for other clubs to look at. And, and then another really amazing example is um, FC Neuschland uh, in Denmark, which is the um, Superliga club in the Danish league, which is actually, which is actually, purchased by an African Football Academy Right to Dream. Um, so really unusual story. Um, right to Dream being an academy in Ghana, which was founded by um, Tom Vernon. He moved out there as a 19-year-old as a coach and ended up setting up his own academy, which has been putting players into European leagues now for many years. And um, amazingly, that academy then, then purchased uh, a football club, FC Neuschland, which has competed in the Champions League and then the Europa League. And another great example of purpose and looking after player well-being, their signatories to common goal. So one one percent of their income is is invested in the in, in the common goal uh, movement set up by Juan and Jurgen. Um, so yeah, Juan Mata, great examples out yeah. Juan Mata, yeah. yeah. Sorry, we we can't all be on. Although I know someone who was a translator and he was embedded with the Spanish team at the London Olympics, and Juan Mata was part of that team. So my friend Goody. Knows yeah. one matter very well, obviously not as well as you know him. He's a superstar, and 
I think I knew Juan, whose a memoir you may have read or you may have heard his story called Becoming a Footballer. Yeah. Yeah. I think he was doing a degree at the same time as he was at either Chelsea or Man United. He was doing some kind of either social or architecture, something academic. But he seems like a very smart guy. Can you confirm this? Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know him particularly well myself, but I've met him a couple of times in, in putting this, this book together. And I've obviously been aware of his, his journey with Common Goal since 2017. And he, he is indeed very smart uh, and switched on and, and I think very courageous with what he's done as well. I mean, when, when he launched Common Goal, it was uh, the original plan was to get 11 players together to announce with him but um, initial efforts before kind of Common Goal even existed to get people and get players engaged, it didn't happen, and then made the decision to go out there and, and publicly launch it. And then we saw a flood of players coming in and, and joining the movement. Um, uh, the, obviously, the, when I talk about the movement, it's a, it's a collection of players, clubs, uh, managers and brands that contribute 1% of their income to a collective pot, which is then distributed to football for good organisations like Kick for Life and others around the world to use um, for their for their programs, um, and you know, so the book talks about how that that launch happened and um, the risks that were involved in it. And actually, then the following days, we saw people like Megan Rapinoe signing up, Serge Gnabry, Matt um, an, uh, an email from Giorgio Cialini himself just landing in the common goal inbox saying that he he, he would like to join and he, the movement as well. You know, top top player like that. So, mm. and it's grown from there really. Now more than two hundred players and more than four hundred members around the world. Mazel um, It's fantastic. If, if I had the kind of income that would make me want to, I'd not offset philanthropy, but you know what I mean, to, to really think of a cause which uh, Jürgen Griesbeck has set up. Something that Jürgen writes in, and you leave last but not least, five pages where Jürgen, I imagine him as a kind of Tony Robbins-esque, not that he's anything like him, but he seems like pure idealism. But just give us a sense of what kind of man Jürgen is? Um, certainly an idealist, but also very practical yep. and, and dynamic. And, and that's maybe something you don't realise when you first meet him because he's very ideas-focused, very visionary, always coming up with, with, with great ideas. And I think one, one thing that constantly comes up in the book is that when people come into contact with Jürgen initially and he puts forward these, these ideas, people think, you know, well... It, it, it's a fantasy. It's, it's not actually going to happen. It's a nice idea, but it's unrealistic. And that's certainly a position that I've been in the past where Jürgen's spoken about things and that's how I felt. But then he, he puts in place his plans. He brings, he, he builds um, collective teams and brings people together. And, and then you know, not everything works out, but a lot of the time his ideas then come to fruition. And with, with things like Common Goal, many, many people told him it was, it was crazy. That it would never work doomed for failure and, and also with the other things he, he created so such as the, the global street football network which is a community of organizations using sport for, for social change so very much a visionary very much an entrepreneur that's built on a bedrock of, of compassion and idealism to change people's lives for the better yeah through the vehicle of football social entrepreneurism but through football which he says is the last unifying force uh in a world which is so riven by, and these are my words, kind of populism and prime ministers who want dogs and not humans to leave Afghanistan. But I'm trying to, I'm trying my very best to pay attention to politics. But the more you pay attention to it, the more you realise how awful it is. 
So is the key to a successful life ignoring politics and all the lobbying and focusing on social enterprise, the kind of people that the BBC looked at in the people fixing the world, people who are kind of investing money into carbon capture and like period pants and that kind of thing. You must have met very many inspirational people, either through yourself or through Jürgen. Yeah, well, I think we need both. I think we need great politicians and leaders uh, and governors. Uh, and, and we also need social entrepreneurs and, and business people as well. So I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's a balance. Um, but, um, yeah, football, you mentioned it as a, a unifying force. I think there is nothing that compares to it that unites people in quite the same way around the world. Um, uh, you know, you think about something like religion, that div- divides perhaps as much as it as, as it unites but football is something that's very so universal and so so popular um obviously the book we don't we don't present football as being the solution for all of the world's problems but we do think that it has as that unifying force it has a massive part to play in that, that currently we're maybe only scratching the surface of its potential for for social impact um so that's really getting to the heart of the message of the book and yet Jürgen sets the reader a challenge you've i mean people will have read the book by the way 25 chapters in the first half, 25 chapters in the second half. And then the third half uh, is this radical 11. It includes Eni Aluko, Pippa Grange, who features in Michael Calvin's latest book, saying that the next uh, big change in football is talking about feelings, which I think Pippa is, she could be the voice on this. We should hear a lot more of her. So well done for getting her before she was famous. Tom Vernon does speak up uh, for Right to Dream. And Eni Aluko, whose book I sat and read in Waterstones in Glasgow. I I read it in two stages because I had some time to kill. What a what a life she has had. And I think she's back in... Is she in England or the States now? I think she's between the States and the, and the UK for various roles, but her, her main focus at the moment, I believe, is Angel City FC, which oh, is yeah. a, a new yeah. purpose-driven football club in, in Los Angeles, um, a women's uh, football club. Yeah, um, yeah owned by... Um, uh, women-only boards include Natalie Portman as well. Yep. I, th- I think their, their first season is about to begin very soon. Uh, mm. So a really exciting model. And uh, you know, be great to see how that goes and grows. Well, it's a story. And these stories are more navigable than, say, Serge Gnabry's former side, Arsenal, where it's all... Well, Arsenal is a soap opera. A lot of football, for about 10 years, ever since Rory Smith said this, football at elite level is a TV programme. Uh, Southampton are kind of bit-part players. Southampton are the Gunther of the Premier League. They're always there. They, when they do well, when they lose 9-0, sorry, uh, it makes the headlines. But I was thinking earlier, we hear nothing, apart from the uh, changes in ownership. Southampton are a really good club. Yeah, great club, great history, great fan base. I'd say you make a good point that um, you know football is very much now an entertainment industry. And, and I... I I think you know it's inevitable that it's going to be that way, but I don't think it needs to be defined in that way. Um, I think it would be a real shame. And I think when people talk about football losing its soul and, and losing its roots, I think that's really what they mean, is that it's become a business so much that the heart of the game has been affected in some way. Yeah. Um, so part of the message of the book is that there are ways that we can, we can begin to restore that uh, essence of football um, by putting purpose back into it, all different levels of the game, in, in governance, in, in the running of football clubs. In, in the way players behave and, and, and the causes they support. There's a bit of a kind of a gold rush because advertisers have realised that if you write about, I don't know, Paul Pogba's hair, you get clicks. 
if you write about embedding purpose within a football club, which is Preeti Shetty's chapter in Brentford, um, a club owned by Matt Benham, who really does know what he's doing. Have you met Matt yet? I haven't, no. Oh, and the other one is Rasmus, Rasmus Ankerson, who uh, yeah. is his deputy. Wow. Uh, he spoke to a guy called Christoph Bim of his book, Football Hackers. And Rasmus was saying how they built Magellan up with the money ball effect. But they realized that they've got to make money and be a commercial enterprise. And getting Christian Eriksen on board, which is being talked about at the end of the transfer window as yeah. we speak. What a, what a great, obvious, an obvious <coughs> signing for a team owned by Danes and with half a Danish first eleven. Um, but what a story that has been in the last nine months. That must give you... Well, the question should be, what do you most remember from the Euro? Ericsson collapsing and people going, Christian Ericsson, or the final, where something happened? Yeah, I think the, the Ericsson incident was probably the most powerful moment. Um, lots of good memories of, of, about that, and I was fortunate to go to the Germany game, which was, I think, probably a personal highlight. Um, but yeah, you, you mentioned things like people are more interested in, in Paul Pogba's hair than a purpose-driven football club. Well, maybe, maybe some people, and I think there'll always be that, that kind of interest from some people. But also, I think a lot of younger people are becoming more conscious about in their decision-making for products and, and services. And you think a club like, like Forest Green Rovers that we mentioned are attracting fans for reasons that aren't just because you live close to the club. So, you know, when I grew up, it was always you supported uh, whichever club was closest to where you were born. But actually, maybe that's changing now and people are st- starting to think about other other reasons beyond just, you know, are they the most successful team or the closest team to you? And, and thinking about whether the club represents their values and, um, and those types of things. So I think there is definitely growing interest in, in purpose-driven football. And I think as it becomes more commercialised, that will, that will only increase. The idea of just supporting a football club that's owned by somebody who doesn't really care about the club, who is pumping money into it and there's no real connection with the local community. You know, that doesn't attract me in any way. And I'm sure there must be other people who feel the same. Mm. Well, Mike Ashley didn't make many friends for Newcastle in the last 15 years. Goodness knows where the PIF will as well. I can't end the first half there. Um, So um, we'll talk more about something called the collaboration gap in the second half. But let us uh, end the first half by asking... Uh, what's the best match you've ever seen at any level? Great question. The match that I've enjoyed watching the most was um, Southampton against Newcastle when Letizia scored two extraordinary goals um, in the Premier League, I'm sure you remember, in the 90s. Yes, well, he um, only ever scores extraordinary goals, Letiz. He does, but I think these two are maybe at an even higher level than his, his regular goals. Um, so, yeah, um, the first one where he flips over the head of a defender and and knocks it in, and the, the second one control on the on the thigh and smash into the opposite top corner, and that was just incredible game to be at. 